on the note of prayer, I want to this morning ask you for prayer um, as we move into the time of opening the scriptures. The, the scriptures for us um, and the time we set aside for the hearing of God's word each week is something that we consider to be intensely spiritual. It's, it's not a human endeavor. Uh, my, I'm, I'm not creative enough or wise enough to impart anything to you. Um, we believe that through the, the act of the delivering of God's word on Sundays, that the Holy Spirit is present and works in our lives. And so regardless of the topic, if you come in, I don't know what your particular need is, but somewhere in that is the presence of the Holy Spirit to speak to that specific need. And we, we pray to that end. And on some days, on some Sundays, it's more evident than others that your pastor needs help. And uh, in, uh, in the past four years of being, almost four years of being a church, uh, there have been occasions where I've come to you and said, quite frankly, to you that uh, I, I needed your help in prayer as I get ready to preach. And this would be one of those weeks. Uh, uh, it was just a terrible week. Some things are going down in our family and related to that that are just not fun. And uh, without spelling it out too much for you, I can just tell you that it's one of those weeks where it's evident to me that if God wants to show up and do something today, it's going to have to be His Spirit to do it. Uh, Because uh, if there's any indication from the Word, we have a lot to look forward to because when we are weak, He's strong. So I would ask for your prayers this morning, uh, and we'll just quietly spend a couple of minutes before the Lord, and then I'll ask for his blessing on his word. So let's go together to the Lord and lift up all the things that we're concerned about at this moment. Let's pray. Father, I'm appreciative for a church family that does not expect me to be fully developed right now or to be um, a tower of strength every day of the year. And Father, I would thank you for the gospel that frees us to be able to say with refreshing uh, freedom that uh, we are not capable of anything you called us to do. Jesus, you made it very clear that you're the vine and we're the branches and that apart from you we can do nothing. And for some reason in our lives, you allow in your counsel and your wisdom and your providence circumstances to remind us of this again. All of us come today with burdens and many of us come with anxiety, um, dripping sort of from our minds and hearts and your word has told us to not be anxious but that in everything through prayer and petition to present our request to God and then you have promised that the peace that transcends understanding would guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus so all of us come today and pray that you'd help by the power of your spirit to put aside the things that trouble us and help us to cast those cares upon you because your word says you care for us. 
And we would ask in this particular time where we are looking to your word and to you that you'd speak to our hearts in some way. In spite of the pastor, in spite of our own brokenness and weakness, that you would miraculously, by your grace, because you love us in Christ, come and meet us here. Where we pray this in the name of Jesus, who makes us holy in your sight. In his name, amen. Many of you aren't from Los Angeles, and neither am I. I moved here a little over six years ago, and I have come to appreciate a new set of terminology, things that meant something very different on the East Coast that mean something here. And, uh, and when, for instance, when we were in uh, Florida and somebody said, hey, there's street parking, that just meant you parked on the street. And here it means something like this. All right, it, it is a confusing, uh, almost... Uh, mind-numbing experience of trying to figure out uh, when it is okay to park on the street, what days, what hours. Sometimes the signage in Los Angeles is mutually contradictory, and, and it will say, you can park here, and at the same time, you can't park here. I would say, we have a postmodern parking department at Los Angeles uh, County. Uh, there, there's so much confusion uh, it's beyond me. So, you know, when, when I talk about street parking to friends who visit, uh, I kind of sort of have to reemphasize and take them through like a primer on the whole experience. You know, when I say be careful, I mean really be careful. You need to read the signs. Uh, another term that has meant something completely different here is the term neighborhood. Like when, when I was in the southeast and somebody said, what neighborhood do you live in? In, in that particular set of town, there was a particular neighborhood that had a flavor and a, and a, and a group of people all to itself. And here, a neighborhood has less to do with where you live and more to do with who you hang out with. You know, it's kind of like my community doesn't all physically live in the same place. It's, it's not like that here. It's a, it's a smidge confusing. Hiking was something that I used to think would have been a, a difficult and challenging and maybe even sweat-producing event. And apparently, at least in the, in the L.A. basin, um, it's something where you put your makeup and best workout clothes on before heading into Runyon Canyon, you know, to be seen. Uh, I, I, who knew that when people said, we like to hike, it was we like to be seen and look good in our, in our clothes. Um, pizza. Um, back east uh, was was like fatty and cheesy, and here uh, my wife loves it, but it's got vegan and gluten free and avocados on it, and I'm like, that's not pizza. I'm sorry, friends. We can we can call it something else if you want, but it is not pizza. And then there's a phrase, and I wrote about this a, a few months back on my blog before we are now transitioning into a new Prism Central blog. But uh, there's a phrase that out here uh, I have had to learn what it means, and particularly in our context of starting a church and small groups and all those things. And the phrase is this, I'm going to try to be there. Now, in every other place I have ever lived, I'm going to try to be there meant I'm going to actually try to be there. And in Los Angeles it means I don't want to hurt your feelings, but there's no way and you know what I'm going to be there. No, it, it literally means no. It means, and so like when we started PRISM, it was just Carolyn and I and a couple of friends, and we would say, 
come to our house for a Bible study, and I would go out and I would ask a bunch of people, only having been here a couple of years, and they would say, I'll try to make it. I'll, I'll try to make it. And I would have like 25 I'll tries to make it. So, you know, I'm not stupid. I didn't think everybody would make it, but I thought, you know, hey, we should expect about 12 people, you know, 50% return rate on this. I'll try to make it. I mean, if they're trying, the odds are that 50% of them are going to actually show up. And then to my surprise, there would be like one person that showed up. And it was the person that said, yeah, I'll be there. So I've kind of had to sort of get accustomed to a culture where people seem to be very reluctant to commit to things. And I'm starting to understand a little bit as to why. Part of it is that there's so much to do here that people are actually afraid that if they commit to doing something with you, something better is going to come up and they'll miss out on that. Sometimes it's just that people don't want to have anybody ever expect anything out of them. Today we finish our very brief September series entitled LA's Four Big Idols by taking a look at the idol of time. Interestingly enough, time is not as seedy as like sex and drugs and rock and roll. You know, I mean, when you talk about the idols of culture or the things that would make people feel like they uh, were putting something instead of God as the primary source of their life, you know, when you think about idols, you do think about fame, or you think about money. And not a lot of people would think about time, but I have discovered in my very brief season here that the idol that perhaps characterizes Los Angeles as much as any other would be people's sense of ownership of their time. The essence of this idol is selfishness. It is a fear that in giving we lose and by keeping we get. And as affluent Westerners, We look at our lives often and say, I'm only going to go around once. What do I want to do with this life? We fail to see that our very lives, our seconds, our minutes, our hours, our days belong to God and we are merely stewards of that time. When we claim that our time is ours to manage and do with what we will, Often we do so by ignoring God's call to sacrifice our time for others. And in so doing, we miss an important avenue of practical experience with Jesus. Instead of looking to Jesus and trusting him with what and how he says we should allocate our time, we tell him and others what of our precious time we are willing to part with. Bill Gates uh, often Uh, historically said that he didn't go to church. And one of the reasons in a Time Magazine article he said many years ago he didn't was because it wasn't a particularly efficient use of his time. And this is the pragmatic kind of perspective about time that lots of people in large metropolitan areas like ours have. They see, is there a personal benefit to me Is this practically something that is a benefit to me? And so therefore, I'm going to make a choice about whether or not that time should be allocated or not. Now, Bill Gates has gone on to actually start attending church in his latter years, and I'm grateful for that. I fully expect that people that don't know Jesus will not see the benefit of giving time to the things and the people of God in particular. 
But just as one, as we've said in weeks past, can't claim to be a mature believer and not be concerned about the glory of God, or a person cannot claim to be a mature believer and be stingy and not generous to the things of God and the people of God, someone can't claim on one hand to be a mature believer and say that their time is their own to use for themselves alone unless they decide on their own what time they have spare left over for others. Today we're going to look at what James, the brother of Jesus, has to say on this really, really important topic about how we're to see our time. And so we look to our passage. I'm going to read it again uh, but just the first two verses, and, and then we're going to separate it into sections. There are five altogether. James 4, verses 13 and 14 says this, Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why? You do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. And what James is saying is that the attitude of the affluent is that our time is ours. This is generally speaking the attitude of the affluent. Now when I talk about affluence, I'm not just talking about people with money. I'm talking about people who are steeped in comfort and live in great safety. We are the most affluent people on the, on the planet. And, G, and James is actually spending this time in his letter teaching the wealthy some important concepts about how, uh, what a trap their wealth can be to their own happiness. Affluence for a Western culture means comfort and safety. We have paved roads and an abundance of law enforcement and emergency services. We all eat at least three meals a day and for some of us more and dress in clothing that is nice and clean we drink clean water and bathe most every day in water that many around the world wish they could drink. As well, we have a good bit of recreational time compared to people who must work every day, all day, sun up to sundown. We are an affluent people, particularly as it relates to our time. I wrote a little book for college students. They're free. We've got so many of them, we couldn't sell them if we tried. So pick one up if you like, or you have a college student you want to give one to. But I wrote a book for college students, and in one of the chapters is, is about time management. And when I've had the occasion to speak to students or people who are going off to college, one of the things I will um, encourage them to, to consider is that they've got a lot more time than they really realize. And I've heard this in the voice of adult Christians in Los Angeles and just about everywhere too, which is to say, I just don't know where the time goes. But they never really sit down and kind of do the math. And so at the risk of condescending to you because I'm in the same boat with you, I thought maybe I would just do this mini exercise. And maybe perhaps you've never really thought that you had 168 hours in a week. And let's assume for a second that you sleep eight or so hours a night, that's 60 hours, you know, 56, 60 hours. And then let's assume that you work 40 to 50 hours a week, and then in Los Angeles, you might spend 10 hours on the road commuting, and that's another 60 hours. Do you realize that that leaves you with 48 hours? So I'm adding in your commute, and I'm adding in your work schedule, and I'm adding in your sleep schedule, and you start thinking, well, yeah, 48 hours, but out of 168, well, do the math again, would you? 
Would you divide that 48 by 7 and realize what you got? That's several hours every day where you're not working or driving to work or sleeping. And so all of us have to start thinking, okay, what do I do with that time? And, and how, does it, how did I ever get to a place where I thought, this is my seven hours, daggone it, and don't you mess with my seven hours? What is it that happened for you and I that we became so affluent with regards to our time that we started thinking we can do whatever we want with it? The question is, whose time is it? And how do we spend it so we won't regret wasting it? James says this to to some folks. And here in verse 13, there's an important word that isn't used as often in teaching in the Bible as you'd think it should be. Uh, Jesus did it from time to time. And it's the word listen. When somebody's going to make a really important point in the New Testament... Remember, James has written three sections, three chapters. They weren't divided like that for him, but he's written quite a bit up to this point in his letter. And so he's gone through all of this material, and then he drops this bomb in the middle of all of it and says, listen. Almost like he's kind of, everybody's kind of going tone deaf, like some of you do about two-thirds of the way through my sermon, you know, if I see your head kind of bobbing like I do my students in my class at Providence College. You you go, hold on, wake up, listen. You know, it's kind of, you want to get everybody's attention. James does this, and he says, listen, in verse 13. So whatever he's saying after listen, it's something that we probably ought to listen to. And, and, And he tells them this. We don't know what tomorrow brings. And to state that we do is simply arrogant and foolish. In verse 13, he says, Listen, you who say today or tomorrow we'll go to this city, that city, spend a day here, carry on business, make money. Why? You don't even know what will happen tomorrow. By attempting to project confidence in our future or attempting to convince ourselves of some type of secure future, we are really trying to gain a peace for ourselves. Tim Keller refers to this idol as the idol of control. Many of us want to have control over future events. We want to know that life is going to be certain. We want to kind of grab it and determine on our own that we're going to do with our time and our lives that which we're going to do with our time and our lives. And somehow or another, in the back of our minds, it makes us feel like there's peace in that. And for a little while, we might delude ourselves into thinking of that. But in reality... We are just doing that. We we don't really know what the future holds. As I mentioned, this week has had uh, one curveball and right angle in my life uh, more than I could really stand. And so, you know, at the beginning of my week, I never would have bet that I was going to go this direction and that direction that fast. But that's how life is. And so the question is, how am I going to come to a place of knowing and finding peace And one of the ways is to let go of my time. Jesus said as much, and this is where James, okay, for those of you who don't know, he's the brother of Jesus. And so not only did he have the luxury of being an apostle and around Jesus a lot, but, you know, but what happened was he grew up with Jesus. So, you know, this is a valid testimony. If you got to say, this is somebody who really believes that Jesus is the Savior and has resurrected from the dead. Um, you know, no sibling is ever going to give that to their, to, their, to their other sibling unless this was really true. I mean, most of us would know that. And James 
is really borrowing from the language of Jesus in Luke 12. Let me read Jesus' parable and see if this resonates again with what James is saying. And he told them this parable in Luke 12. The ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And then I'll store my, all my grain and all my goods. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you've prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself but is not rich towards God. And the application for us with regards to the superabundance of time that we have is to say we can't develop a mentality of saying our time's my own. I'm going to waste it really doing a bunch of stuff that maybe won't matter because tomorrow I may not be around. And what am I going to have done with the life that God has given me to steward? In verse 14, James goes on to give a really interesting description that means a lot in Southern California in the summer. Sometimes you'll go to these restaurants and it'll be like baking. I know Brooks and I went out and took a two-day pastoral retreat out to Palm Desert this summer. And it was 115 one day. I mean, 115 degrees, who's insane enough to eat outside? Well, they'll have these little misters sometimes if you're eating outside at these, in these little areas. You know, they spray water, like cold water. Oh, it feels so nice and comfortable. Well, the interesting thing is, is that that mist in 115 degree heat, it, it evaporates before it hits the turf, before it hits the concrete, it's gone. And this is what the apostle is saying. He's saying, do you realize how precious your, this time is? The time that God has given you, how precious it is and how easy it would be in your mind if you are affluent to think that that's your time to do with you what you want, whatever you want to do with it. And he's saying, before you know it, this is going to be behind you. Before you know it, this is all going to be done. Your life on this planet is a vapor. It is a mist. It is here. It is gone. And before you know it, You'll sit and go, why did I not do, why did I not steward my time more efficiently? We have no control over our future. And to pretend that we do is failing to recognize the most obvious of truths. And that is that life is short. Now, this isn't to say, you and I, that we should live it up because we only go around once. It's to say we should steward our time with God and steward it well and to see it as his. One of the, the community groups we have this summer uh, studied C.S. Lewis's screw tape letters. And in the 21st letter of screw tape, uh, and for those of you who don't know what this, this really this great book is about, it's about the attack on the Christian from the perspective of two demons. Uh, a, an uncle who is teaching his nephew how to be a really effective demon and, and ruin a Christian's life. So uh, he writes these letters, Uncle Screwtape does, to his nephew Wormwood. And he says, this is what you got to do if you really want to monkey up this Christian life that somebody has. And one of the things he says in Screwtape letter 21 is the following. With regards to our relationships, it is the unexpected visitor when he looked forward to a quiet evening or the friend's talkative wife turning up when he looked forward to a private talking with the friend that throw him out of gear. 
Now he is not yet so uncharitable or slothful that these small demands on his courtesy are in and of themselves too much for it. They anger him because he regards his time as his own and feels that it is being stolen. You must therefore zealously guard in his mind the curious assumption, my time is my own. Let him have the feeling that he starts each day as the lawful possessor of 24 hours. Let him feel as, as a grievous tax that portion of this property which he has to make over to his employers and as a generous donation, that further portion which he allows to religious duties. But what he must never be permitted to doubt is that the total from which these deductions have been made was in some mysterious sense his own personal birthright. You might think this is an overstatement of the reality, but I think all of us have to admit that we have been in those places where we thought, you know, these people are imposing on my time and, and I just am offended and I just feel like, why? What we, if we're going to understand the idol of time in our lives, what the first thing we have to recognize is that as affluent people, We've got to change our perspective on this. We have got to see. We've got to acknowledge. We've got to recognize that our time is not ours. Our time is actually God's. And here's the second thing I'd share with you this morning from James's letter. And that is not only is the attitude of the affluent that our time is ours, the mentality of the mature is that our time is God's. And you see this here in verses 15 through 17. And this is another key word in your Bible study. So we said listen was a word you wanted to pay attention to. Instead is another transition word that would help you to recognize, okay, this is by contrast. So instead of being somebody that says, this is what I'm going to do, and this is what I'm going to spend my time on, this is where I'm going, this is what I want to do with my life because it's me, 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 we're now being told by James that instead this is supposed to be the perspective. Instead, you ought to say, if it's the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast and brag. All such boasting is evil. Anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. Oddly, and somewhat bizarrely paradoxically, there is a Christian version of this that says, a, a, an immature mentality about our future that says instead of if it's the Lord's will it says by faith I declare that this will happen so if you've been around health and wealth gospel prosperity preaching or televangelists for any length of time you'll recognize the difference and, and this is what's funny because in that world where we pray for people's healings and we hope and pray for circumstances to work out to our favor the scriptures say we're supposed to say if it's the Lord's will. In that subculture in which I lived, it's actually transitioned to where if you add if it's the Lord's will, that's a demonstration of your lack of faith. How twisted is that? How, what a perversion of who we are in relationship to God Almighty to think that he has endowed us with the responsibility not to say, if it's the Lord's will, I will do this, but to say, I know the future. I speak the future. I am confident by faith. Apparently, in certain Christian, so-called Christian circles, if you tack 
this phrase, in the name of Jesus and by faith on anything you say, it's going to happen. James says the exact opposite. He says, we're supposed to say, if it's the Lord's will, anything else is boasting. Anything else other than if it's God's will, it's boasting. Some have said to me, well, don't you believe that God heals people? I do. I do. And, you know, just weeks ago, we prayed for my precious sister, Lisa, and anointed her with oil in, in, in keeping with James chapter 5. We believe God heals. But you know what? We also believe that 10 out of 10 of us are going to die. So at some point in all of our lives, he's not going to heal. At some point in all of our lives, we're all going to pass away unless Jesus returns before that day. Some of us will die of old age, but you know what that means? It means that our bodies were too beaten down to fight off the cancer or the heart attack. God could have healed. He didn't. Some people die tragically. And I often want to ask the people, the purveyors of this mentality about our responsibility to have enough faith to bring about this stuff. Who didn't have enough faith for those kids to die in that ferry accident in Korea? Was it their parents' fault? Who wasn't praying and had enough faith? Was it the captain's fault because he didn't pray enough to overstuff the boat? Whose fault is it when you die in a car accident? Who didn't have enough faith for that? God is sovereign over all things. He knows we don't. And it is not unspiritual or lacking faith to say, if it's God's will, it's actually biblical. Now, the mature believer knows this in concert with this. And understand this. This is what James is trying to say. God knows best what he wants, and what God wants is best. I want to say that again. It may be one of the only things you'd want to write down today that might be <laughs> have been something creative I put down. It's, a, it's an amalgamation of scriptural verses that I could give to you later. God knows best what he wants, and what God wants is best. You and I have to get to a place in our faith where we're saying, yeah, I want this, but I'm broken, I'm fallen, and what do I really know about what I need or want? You know, what do I really know about what's best for me? I mean, I had a college sweetheart, darling young woman, and I wanted to marry her, and she broke my heart. And I prayed and prayed, God, is this your will? And God said, by virtue of not allowing me to marry her, no. You've heard of Garth Brooks' song, Unanswered Prayers? Well, I thank God for that, because I met my beautiful wife not that much longer and uh, lo that much later, and our lives together would not have happened if God hadn't said no. So how stupid would I be to stand there and declare to God, I claim her in the name of Jesus, by faith, she's mine. I didn't even know what I needed. I was a stupid 22-year-old guy. I'm 49 now. I'm not all that much smarter, but I'm glad that God's will prevails over my will. And that's what we got to want. God knows what's best. He knows best what he wants. And what James is simply calling you and I to do is to put trust in him. To say, I am going to pray for your will, not because I don't think that somehow or another I'm responsible to tell you what I think, but to admit humbly, I don't have a clue what I need. I 
I'm broken. I'm fallen. I could be wrong here. We're praying about whether God wants us to have this chapel. We'll talk more about it next week as Vision Month starts at PRISM. A pretty neat opportunity lays before us as a young church. I'll tell you all about it next Sunday. But I want you to know that the prayer of our leadership at this point, and certainly Brooks and I have been praying, God, if you don't want us to own this little chapel, we don't want it. Do we want it? Sure. Every day we sit down and go, we could do this, and we could do these creative things here, and we could use it for ministry, and wouldn't that be something? And Wow. But guess what we want? We want what God wants, because what God wants is better than anything we want. And I'm not going to get into a fight with God about what he wants. I've learned, if anything, by stupidity, that most of what I think I want, I don't realize might not be good for me. Thomas Watson said this. This past week I posted it on our PRISM Facebook page, and I know for those of you who follow, I can tell because you like it. Um, I would encourage you to like it more frequently and actually just pay attention to it. But this is what Thomas Watson, the, the great Puritan, said this. If the thing we desire be good for us, we shall have it. If it not be good, then the not having it is good for us. The resting satisfied with this promise gives contentment. The resting satisfied with this promise gives contentment. Now that said, we are called to ask God what we are to do with our lives. There is a human responsibility. There is part of the plan of God is you and I engaging with him and, and every year, every month, every week, every day, every hour, every second, recognizing these are precious resources we don't want to waste and to reverently ask him, Lord, how do I steward this time? When the Apostle Paul was leaving his good friends at the church of Ephesus, it was a heart-wrenching time for him. Now, sometimes you'll get the idea that when pastors move on from job to job, that they don't really care. It's kind of like leaving IBM to go work for Microsoft, you know. Hey, well, you know, I knew some people at work, but I like the new work environment better. When you're involved in the ministry... And you've perhaps experienced this at a church where you really loved the people you were close to and then you had to move. And there was something that was like, this really stinks. You know, I really felt like I was developing community with these folks and now my life has moved a different direction and I'm, I'm wishing I had my old church back. And don't feel bad if you feel that way. It doesn't hurt my feelings. There are times where I think back to our home church and I go, I miss my friends. So there's, there's nothing insulting about that, at least not to me. The Apostle Paul had this experience where he is saying, God, what am I going to do with my time? I'm going to follow you. And Paul could have said, I'm doing great work here at Ephesus. I've got these elders that I'm really close to. We are cooking with gas. I mean, we're going to show up in the book of Revelation. I mean, we're, not, we're a good church. You know what I'm saying? I mean, we've got things going on. You know, this, this church plant's working. I should stay here but he hears the Lord give him direction, and he moves on. And he even gives Paul the clarity about where he's headed that he's going to die for the gospel. Now, I don't know many of you, if God told you, hey, I want you to continue walking that way because uh, they're going to kill you. If you'd actually keep going, uh, there are days where I wonder if I would. Paul is talking with these Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, and he is getting ready to leave, and he says this. Now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up 
and give you an inheritance amongst all of those who are sanctified. I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. And everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak, remembering the words the Lord Jesus himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. He's talking about his time. He's saying, I'm going to work so that I'm not a burden to these people. He's not talking about financial resources. He's talking about the actual expenditure of his time. And he's living it in front of them again by saying, life would be really great. It goes on to say in this passage that they pulled themselves away from each other and wept. Paul and his buddies, the elders, just sobbed. Because they were sad because Paul said, you're never going to see me again. Paul told them, I'm going to die. I'm going to suffer and die. And he's saying, my life is not my own. We can trust God that if we give him our time, our lives, whether it's a life lived in the vocation that you are currently engaged in or another vocation altogether, whether it's helping out somebody who seems like an emotional burden to you, but then you say, God has called me to this, I'm going to do this whether it's leaving behind a relationship that's a drag on your system, or whether or not it's just a a better expenditure of your time towards the things that will help you grow. Most of us, out of some sort of obligation, make our way to church on Sunday mornings, but increasingly, people feel a freedom to not. And it's not like I take attendance or I chide or chastise people if they don't, but Think of what that means for our spiritual health if we just ignore the preaching of God's word and the taking of communion or the fellowshipping together and worshiping together in obedience to scripture. All we're doing is harming ourselves. I drive by 24 Fitness every day. Who's getting hurt by me not walking in? You know, Uncle Chuck. I mean, it's, it's my waistline, it's my heart that is getting deprived of what should happen when with me on the treadmill and I drive by it because it's just like, ah, I don't want to do this. So I've been there. I know what it's like in my sabbatical year before we launched Prism Church. We got to go to Lake Avenue for a year and just sit in the back and talk to no one, which was really great, I want to say off the top of my head. Um, but there were Sundays where Carol and I just dropped the kids off uh, <laughs> for their Sunday school and we went and got coffee. It was like, oh, I'm just so glad to not be in church this morning. But truth be told is that it probably there was a word we needed to hear from Dr. Waybright that would have spoke to us. We may have felt like we were getting away with it by going and getting coffee and maybe that was our minor rebellion because we were in between calls. But in reality, nobody was hurt other than us. On top of that, within our context, it can't all be about us. So when you say, I'm not going to come to church, you realize that there's somebody at church that needed your encouraging word today? Do you realize that there are going to be Sundays, and I'm not asking you to come up afterwards and hug me and tell me you love me, but there are Sundays like today where I need your encouragement. And we're in this together. Say, I want to be involved in a community group, but I just don't have the time. Sure you do. Sure you do. I mean, I love you, but sure you do. And you're only hurting yourself, but you're also depriving others of the opportunity to be blessed by you. Let us pray today 
that as we move forward as a church, that we would be cognizant of the things that take the place of God in our lives. And this last one, that we would be fully aware and committed to the prospect that our time belongs to the Lord. Let us pray. Father, I would thank you for a church that loves me. Thank you for a church family that would come alongside Carolyn and I in difficult seasons and, um, and our family in general praying for us, and thank you for that. I thank you that uh, this morning <laughs> you didn't let me stay in bed, but you have hemmed me in on all sides that I would be here this morning to be encouraged by my church family too. Thank you that our time is yours. And I'd pray that you would help us to trust you with doing the things that we need to do to grow both spiritually and to be a spiritual encouragement to others. Father, today as we approach the communion table, I pray that we would zealously turn from our life of selfishness and take advantage of the opportunity we have to be not only used by you, but to see you through our sacrifice. Your word has made it clear there's more joy, there's more blessing in giving of our time than the hogging of our time. I pray that we would trust you in that. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.